Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. And I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Tom. And you? Uh, doing pretty well. Um, really excited to dig into uh, this week's book, um, the third novel from Muriel Spark, Memento Mori. I, I, I don't even know where, where to start with this one. Um, it's, every one of her novels so far has almost reset what I think is, uh, is her best work and um, what, what she can accomplish. I'm starting to think that she can pretty much do any novel that she uh, could possibly have thought of. And well, considering that there are 20 of them to get through, she, pro- she may well have done every single no- possible novel. Any, uh, any initial thoughts on uh, Memento Mori? I just thought reading this was damned fun. I think that she does something that um, I haven't encountered very often. She creates this entire novel around a cast of octogenarians, people in their 70s, 80s. And wow, what a vibrant life these people live. I mean, there's some there's some things that happen to them that feel like it's it's out of their control, out of their hands, but they're spunky. They have this um, entire kind of soap opera-ish, melodramatic, uh, younger life with affairs amongst one another and blackmailing so that the affairs don't become known. And I don't know if you do this, Tom, but I kind of when I read a book that has a lot of characters, I kind of try to like plot out like a chart of the characters. And my chart for this is just crazy showing like, you know, familial relationships and marriages, but then like the lines just go every which way because this person had an affair with that person and then later got married to this person. And it, it, everything is just like a, a big scramble. I just had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it's this really incredible social web that um, Spark weaves, and it's one like like you said that stretches over, I mean, more than a half century in, in some ways. Uh, and as the novel progresses, and as characters reminisce about someone that that maybe was brought up in a previous chapter by a totally different character, the the subsequent characters reminiscence fills you in so much more about who that person was or what they were like 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And there's also just, because we're dealing with like both octogenarians, but also a certain social set, um, the interplay among these folks, but also within the context of the folks who work for them, the, the servants whose almost entire lives are built around I don't know the, the 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 lives of other people that really comes to the fore and is it's really interesting. It's also there there is a sense of this being a, a kind of a period that's coming to an end. I think as well. Uh, there are some comments even to that effect um, at the midway point of the novel, but that this is this is not something that really will persist uh, for much longer. Uh, not that there won't be more octogenarians. Actually, it seems like there are progressively more and more of them, which in some ways may be one of the tensions in the novel, that they are all living so very, very long, as opposed to what they 
what, what may have been the case for even 10 or 15 years previous, but that, you know, the, the character of uh, Gene Taylor, who spent 60 plus years taking care of another character, Charmian, um, being her Charmian's maid, but housekeeper and confidant. Um, those two characters are so deeply intertwined, they almost, in some respects, they, they, they can predict each other's responses, even though they haven't lived with each other in a few years. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating social critique as well as being absolutely hysterical absolutely and and wicked in a way right i mean the the amount of sexual interest the octogenarians uh express uh i don't know it was moderately shocking for me right now i can't imagine what it would have been like in 1959 when it when it came out one of the really great things about this novel um I think, and, and why it's so much fun to read is that it it is almost, well, I would say 80% of it is dialogue. And the dialogue is, is snarky and funny. She has a lot of fun kind of playing with the whole idea of senility and the fact that, you know, so many of these characters, the people around them are willing to just say, you know, oh, she or he's acting this way because they're senile. Um, When you really come to understand that for the most part, they all have their wits really well, um, you know, kind of in their grasp and they're not, they're not nearly as, as dotty and, and kind of out of it as a lot of people assume. And and that's fun too, because she's kind of, she is empowering these elderly people, I think in a way that uh, even today we don't see, we don't see much of in literature. It's, it's fun to see how they're old, but they're still like manipulating each other. And they still have like these ambitions about, money and inheritances. And like you said, some of the characters are, have been employees and have been house staff for some of the other characters. And of course, you know, they know where all the secrets are buried. You know, they're the ones that are also kind of like agitating and, and digging up trouble for, for the main characters. But again, there's kind of this I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the word occult in this book, but there is this kind of metaphysical kind of thing that's happening that it's like, well, is this really happening to these people or is it in their minds or what really is going on? So I don't know, maybe we should talk a little bit about the the main premise of, of the book and how the characters are situated and then we can get into it a little bit more fully. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so... Memento Mori, like the very title of it, uh, roughly translates or basically translates to uh, "Remember, you must die." It's a phrase that has been used as a like a literary, just generally artistic trope for some time. Um, it's also suggested that in the wake of uh, grand triumphs in um, Rome and under the Roman Empire, Roman Republic, that the uh, conquering general would have a 
someone standing behind them in the chariot um, during their triumph, reminding them that all things pass, that nothing lasts forever, that you too one day will will die. But in the specific case of this novel, uh, it's actually something that's happening, uh, a, a phrase that's being delivered to the characters. Um, we open with uh, Letty Colston uh, receiving phone calls uh, at kind of, I think, if I remember correctly, for for Letty, they kind of happen throughout the day, though I think mainly focus between like 4 and 6 p.m. Um, that's not an especially important detail. Um, but someone answering, her answering the phone or um, her uh, housemaid answering the phone and delivering it to her, the voice confirming that it's Letty Coulson and then her being told, remember, you must die. And then the caller hangs up. She is obviously quite perturbed by this. Uh Letty Colston is uh, in her late, I think she's 79 at the start of the novel, um, almost in her 80s and uh, fairly well off. Uh, she is part of a uh, brewery family. And yeah, she uh, puts in a call to the police to try and have them trace the call, figure out what's going on. And uh, being a more than moderately paranoid person, uh, Letty thinks that, well, through the course of the novel, she thinks many different people are involved in uh, these phone calls. But she brings the this concern to her brother, uh, Godfrey, uh, who is married to Charmian. Uh, Charmian was a novelist of some renown, um, and this is all taking place in basically 1958, 1959. Um, Charmian's renown was sometime in the teens and 20s uh, as a novelist. And uh, Charmian is not doing well. Like she, Godfrey's 88, uh, uh, she, Charmian's 85, and she seems to be wandering. Her sense of where she is in time, who she's speaking with, uh, tends to slip. And from there, we are launched into a, an incredible cast of characters. Uh, we spend a fair bit of time with Jean Taylor, uh, Charmian's former, um, I mean, what would the term be? Like, how, how, housemaid doesn't seem quite correct. I mean, companion is also inaccurate because of the the social and job difference. Yeah, I guess I would say that, that Janet Taylor, and she's referred to most often in the book as just Taylor, which is kind of interesting. Um, she's kind of like the house manager, I guess, for this wealthy family. And I will just note, Tom, that I'm not sure that I'm correct, but in my head, when I was reading the book, I was pronouncing um, Godfrey's wife's name as Charmaine, but that might be wrong. Well, I was actually thinking about that, and that probably is the correct pronunciation, even though it was it's I-A-N in the book, but it probably is Charmaine, and then the Charmaine that I'm most familiar with spelling wise is M A I N E at the end, I think. And that's probably just development over time, but yeah. And also it's a much easier way to pronounce the name than Charmian. Charmian makes me feel like I'm losing it quite frankly as a pronunciation. Um, but yeah, I mean, so from, from that opening, I mean, this is very much the opening scene is um, Letty going over to see her brother. Godfrey is a, irritable he comes across as just a real jerk a, a, a real a man who feels small because of his wife's achievement and a man who's very very mean to his wife 
especially in her her reduced state that she is floating in time that she does sometimes call him eric uh the name of their son that she asks if taylor uh is about to bring in the tea or not even though uh gene taylor has been uh in a nursing home for just like about three years at that at that juncture from there we meet um alec warner uh another part of their social set uh, who is conducting a study uh into gerontology he is 10 years younger than um, Charmaine, so 75, and he has this incredible amount of information about all the people that he's interacting with, but on top of that, he has a system for anonymizing them uh, and clearly does not plan for his study to be published while he's alive, that he wants this to come out after his death, but that the papers that would identify these people uh, are all to be destroyed so that all that's left is the data, the results of of his study, which, as I'm sitting here now thinking about it, is madness in its own way, because who else was Alec Warner going to be studying? Like, how much how much data can he really strip away to make it clear that he's not talking about uh, Charmaine Colston and her husband Godfrey and his sister? I mean, they're just... There are too many identifying details in a way of just their social standing for it to really be cleanly anonymized, I don't think. Well, I I love the character of Alec Wright. I thought he was so weird and interesting. One of his – he has a penchant for um, either delivering shocking news or knowing when shocking news is going to be delivered and then making sure that um, – the people involved receiving the news or giving the news are like recording their temperature and their blood pressure and their physical appearance for him, writing it down both for themselves and the others around them so that he can kind of add that data to his remarkable database. But another, um, another cool thing I thought about him was he employs some agents to help him um, with gathering all of this data and information. Um, most specifically, a, a young lady, I think she's 24, named Olive Mannering. And just their relationship and the way that they interact, I think, is is so funny because um, – I don't think he pays her all that much, but she's so very enthusiastic about giving him the scoop about all of these people in their social circle and divulging the secrets to him. And, you know, and then of course he's always asking, well, what did he look like the last time you saw him? And what, what was, what was she, you know, acting like? And, um, so it, it, it's just like a really quirky, weird kind of kind of guy that's um that's really kind of totally obsessed with this with this very detailed study that he's doing about aging. He's a gerontologist. So that's it I liked I liked his character a lot. His character is phenomenal. Um I also think that there's a lot of uh name play going on with the characters in this novel. Godfrey does not profess any particular religion, but his name translates to God's peace. Um, Charmaine is bringer of joy, and that seems to have been what she what she functioned as for much of her life within their social circle. Um, the 
the request on Warner's part to get all this information is always when he's delivering what he thinks is a shock uh, set of news. So he wants to know, like, you know, before you, I know it's not possible to ask you to record your um, pulse before you've read this letter, but if you could do it right now and let me know if you feel like there's a substantial difference. Um, But like the idea that his name's Warner and uh, Taylor in particular she in so many ways is what stitches together a lot of the action in the, in this novel. She's the one that provides really good information to other people as to how, what they should do next and what it's going to trigger. And she's the one that like really knows how everyone else is going to react to every bit of information that she puts out there, which is absolutely fascinating and gives a really like, I don't know, a a really interesting insight into what it was to run a household uh, in this time. And she's also in a nursing home for the entire um, course of of the novel. And she she lives a pretty vibrant life in the nursing home, too, although people are dying all around her, her friends and and others that she doesn't know so well. But... um, there's definitely a social structure in that nursing home and they definitely have their own kind of controversies and issues going on. That was interesting. When you, when it comes to names though, don't forget about the side bottoms. <laughs> Tempest side bottom. It's just one of the great names I've encountered in, in any media in a, a very, very long time. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's a little bit, um, a little bit of Dickens almost. Yes. Yes. Well, and and I think it's hearkening back into that as well. Much like we kind of did last uh, episode when we were doing a ceremony, I mean, there's a lot that happens in this novel and we could spend an hour just recounting every, every side story, every interaction, and they're all fantastic. I don't think there's really a, a, a thread that isn't followed to its logical conclusion within the context of the novel. But I think the one other bit of plot to really maybe kind of introduce right now is that aside from this phantom caller, because throughout the novel, different people think that this caller doesn't exist. Um, at one point, Alec Warner also gets the phone call and then um, writes down his notes on it and then associates it uh, within his filing system uh, with mass hysteria. Uh, he seems to think, eh, this is probably not actually happening and I'm, I've now been infected. He has such a, Warner has such a casual relationship with how much of his reality is he actually in control of, which uh, puts him at odds at different points with, uh, with Gene Taylor. But the, but the other bit that kind of gets things moving uh, is the death of Lisa Brooke. Uh, Lisa is, well, she's incredibly, she was incredibly wealthy. Um, she clearly was not entirely in control of herself uh, towards the end of her life to the extent that her, her companion maid, um, Mrs. Pettigrew, uh, was insinuating herself into Brooke's life. And and frankly, I've been kind of pulled into that life by um, by Brooke, but it's this tension over money. Letty Colston likes to write people in and out of her will, uh, pretty much based on her mood. Uh, when Lisa Brooke dies, her most recent will leaves her estate, or at least the vast majority of it, to Pettigrew. But then that becomes legally complicated by by other matters. There's there's this real tension over money that's running throughout it but 
Brooke's relationship to the various secrets and infidelities and indiscretions that pretty much every other character engaged in at some point over the last 50, 60 years keeps coming back up. Lisa, it's not just the money and the inheritance that becomes an issue when it comes to Lisa Brooke. It's her her awareness of what other people did at which times and what other people don't know about what those characters did at those times that is weaponized by different characters throughout the novel. Um, both to, I mean, weaponized both for positive ends, freeing some people from certain situations and negative ones, um, blackmail, uh, I mean, blackmail most specifically. So that, that, that would be the other real, I think, driver uh, or first mover that gets gets the action uh, of the novel rolling. Yeah, um, we are introduced to Lisa Brooke basically at her funeral. And that has a whole funny kind of thing going on with, you know, all of these old people and spilling tea and Godfrey, you know, hoarding cakes in his in his suit jacket but we find out that there is a battle over lisa brooks inheritance and it's basically between her husband guy leet and mrs pettigrew and of course both of them are claiming the money and um one of the the allegations as to why lisa brooks husband shouldn't get the money is because their marriage was a sham or it was never consummated. And I don't think it's giving too much away to bring Godfrey and Charmaine, their connection to Lisa Brooke into this, because we find out that Guy was having an affair with Charmaine after she got married, soon after she got married, within a year of her marrying Godfrey. And she was being threatened with blackmail by Lisa Brooke. And so... As a consequence, Guy agreed to marry Lisa Brooke to shut her up and protect Charmaine from being exposed. But he knew in marrying Lisa Brooke that it was always going to be kind of a sham because, and I don't know whether this was so clear to you, Tom, but there's there's allusion made to like Lisa Brooke's perversities. Um, so um, I don't know. What do you make of that? So- Charmaine and Guy had an affair in the, like the early 20th century, like 1907 and 1908. And the specificity of the dates becomes really quite something. I mean, Gene Taylor is able to specify like down to the month and location of where the indiscretions took place. Um, but they broke it off and then took up again in the mid-20s. And it was in the mid-20s that Lisa Brooke began the blackmail. And as you were saying, it's the, the marriage was never consummated, um, which I, I guess had at that time specific legal ramifications. Uh, also, no one knew that they were married. And that's because for Lisa Brooke, and Brooke is her married name. She got married in the early part of the 20th century to a very wealthy man, and then um, the marriage was dissolved. But for Lisa Brooke, she needed... The it seemed like she needed the control, the taking guy away, the idea that she was married uh, in the background to really make whatever else she did fun for her to kind of like give her that thrill that that she needed, um, which 
I don't know if it's, it's funny. I don't know if it's because um, Gene Taylor spent so much time with Charmaine that they became so similar in outlook and in life choices. Um, Charmaine converts. I mean, again, we have uh, another convert to Roman Catholicism. When Charmaine converts, so does Gene. And for Gene, it becomes a much more profound conversion than it does for Charmaine. But uh, Lisa Brooke and um, Mabel Pettigrew, they're very similar. I mean, Pettigrew is also a black male or also someone who is who wants certain levels of control in order to feel a certain kind of sexual pleasure. And is that because she spent decades with Lisa Brooke? Is that because like attracts like and it sort of builds up over time? Um, yeah, I mean, th- th- those dynamics are ones I don't think you can really totally peel back, but they're really interesting ones to uh, kind of think about, to dwell on in terms of how how the characters developed over time and and where they end up in this novel. For the first third of the book, I think you feel very sorry for Charmaine because she's very put upon by these characters. Um, basically, her husband, who I think... Alec Warner describes as, or maybe Gene Taylor as well, as he's a he's a bully to his wife. He bullies her, and then when Mrs. Pettigrew loses her position with Lisa Brooke, and the will is being contested, so she doesn't know whether she's going to inherit or not. She goes to work for Godfrey and Charmaine, and she's horrible to Charmaine seriously bullies her, tries to argue with her, you know, at every opportunity saying she's senile and she's basically doing it because she's afraid that if, you know, she needs money if Lisa Brooks will doesn't work out. And so she wants to manipulate Godfrey to, um, to name her in his will and she thinks that the best way or the most effective way to do that is basically to get Charmaine put away in a nursing home somewhere um, on grounds of senility because she recognizes that Godfrey feels a certain amount of guilt and attachment to Charmaine, and she just kind of wants her out of the picture. I think that we should also mention that Charmaine is an internationally renowned novelist, And one of the so interesting dynamics, I think, that plays out in the novel and is explored is the fact that Godfrey and Charmaine feel more or less enfeebled based upon how much leverage, power, I don't know how you would explain it, but, but how they are positioned with their spouse. So you know, when, when Charmaine is down, Godfrey's feeling, you know, pretty confident and awesome, but then Charmaine's novels kind of get a whole new generation of readership later in the novel. And there are journalists coming by the house and photographers. And so he's always kind of felt like he lived in her shadow. So as she starts to get very popular again, he starts to feel enfeebled and, Alec Warner's noticing, you know, he's losing weight. He's just a bag of bones. Posture's bad. He looks bad. So yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of thing she's exploring there, I think. 
And, and for Charmaine, it doesn't really seem to be as much a physical change as it is her mental state. Absolutely. As, as she becomes, uh, her novels are reissued or put back into print. So a, a lovely backlist mention there, which I really appreciate it given, given one of the threads of our, of our podcast. Um, but as that happens and she gets that engagement with the public again, um, she, she's better able to be present and to uh, have her wits about her, to have greater awareness and, her pushing back against Pettigrew also helps her kind of anchor. But at the start of the novel, Godfrey, Godfrey does not come across as an 88 year old man. I mean, he seems much more vital than that. He seems uh, not to give away his age. And as Charmaine reasserts herself, yeah, he, he begins to look his age. He begins to show less of less sexual interest than he had uh, at the earlier part of the novel. Um, Godfrey apparently very much likes to see the uh, the garter belt or the the suggestion of the garter on a woman's stockings, and so uh, pays women just to kind of hike up their skirt ever so slightly, and that's all he seems to be interested in. Um, <laughs> but the first time that happened, that was quite sort of comes out of nowhere. You're like, well, okay, I guess this is what's going on here. Then, yeah, he's kind of got a fetish, Mrs. Pettigrew. We see her doing it first and he hands her some pounds and you know some some cash and then with all of mannering mannering we see it as well um maybe that's all that godfrey can handle at his advanced age we know that he was quite the womanizer when he was younger and that's some of the guilt that he feels towards charmaine and is like a weird dynamic in their relationship that there's this Charmaine is fully aware that he was a womanizer, but he doesn't really know that she was aware. So he's constantly kind of feeling guilt. And, you know, you get the sense that she knew all about it. She doesn't really care anymore. And furthermore, she had her own fling going going on with Guy Leet that, that Godfrey doesn't know about. So, yeah, theirs is, theirs is a very interesting relationship, I think. It is interesting that they just, they were together for half a century. I mean, as a married couple and yet so thoroughly did not, well, maybe that's incorrect. Uh, Godfrey did not really understand his wife. She really seemed to get him and she understood his infidelities as an expression of his insecurity with her success. And she further understood that he felt this tremendous guilt over them because However else he felt about her fame and recognition and people's opinions of her intelligence, um, he had attributed a morality to that, that she was better than he was, which fed into then his guilt for having affairs, for stepping out of the marriage, and also manifested in, and it seemed like both of their not very great treatment of their, of their son, Eric, uh, who shows up at the very end in a very very odd, odd manner. Yeah. Eric is mentioned kind of throughout the book. He's a novelist as well. And we kind of get the sense that he's not such a great novelist. He doesn't really have any relationships, so to speak, with his mother or his father anymore. He's 57 years old. And, you know, the most that everyone can, anyone can say about him is that he's a disappointment. His aunt Letty plays with him 
in terms of the will, you know, disinheriting him one minute, putting him back in the will the next and letting him know it at each move to such an extent that she suspects perhaps that he's, he's the crank caller. He's the one that's been calling and saying, remember, you must die multiple times to her. But of course, we, we come to learn that almost all of these characters began to get this call. It happens to Godfrey. It happens to to Pettigrew, to Alec Warner, as you said. It happens to Charmaine. They all pretty much get this get this call, and it causes Letty, at least, to hire a private detective, Mortimer, who's a character I also like a lot. I don't know how do we describe Mortimer. Mortimer is someone they knew know from their set, but almost more because of his previous position. Um, he does not seem to occupy. I mean, major the majority of these people are wealthy. They they have some form of inherited wealth. The Colsons through their brewery, Lisa Brooke through her marriage, and a little bit from it seems from uh her 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 family otherwise. Mortimer was a former chief inspector with the Metropolitan Police. Uh he's retired. He is someone they reach out to in or Letty reaches out to to try and use his police contacts to see what's going on, to see what he can figure out about the situation. And he is recently retired. He's 73, I believe. And I will say he seems to have the fullest life, or at least the healthiest life as it pertains to the next generation. And in seems to be in a loving marriage. Uh, his wife and he are taking care of one of their grandchildren uh, at one point. And it, it looks like what you kind of think of when you think of grandparents uh, feeding a two-year-old and playing with them in the garden, like he just seems contented in a way that none of these other folks seem especially contented. Or maybe it's just he has more than they do at this stage of his life. He has a relationship with his children and his grandchildren. He has a a fuller a fuller commitment and uh, perspective on on who he is and, and where he is in the world. So do you think he's taking advantage of these old people and their fear? I mean, he's not young either, but most of them are older than he, of this these calls that they're getting? Because I get the sense that he really doesn't believe that he can solve the the mystery. Well, that's because he his wife thinks that he's developed these philosophies since his retirement. Um, and his philosophy in this case is that it is... It's not anyone specific calling them. It's death. That death itself is what is reaching out to them to remind them that life has a, an expiration date, that they should keep this in mind as they continue to to proceed in the world. And I mean, that kind of ties into Alec Warner's thought that it's a mass hysteria. Uh, it also ties into Gene Taylor never receives a phone call. And somewhat asked about that, uh, she comments that uh, the there is a point in the novel where the ward, where the, the retirement home, the nursing home that she is in, centenarians move in um, and much more senile, um, much further along in like a mental deterioration um, group is moved into the same room as the one she's in. Not that all the women she's surrounded with are all holding on to their realities as, as well as she is, but these are women who simply can't take care of themselves any longer. Um, and so when asked about receiving the call, she 
states that the other women at the end of the ward are her memento mori, her reminder that death comes for us all. Jean Taylor is fantastic. I mean, she is a very, very smart, very interesting, yeah, really, really fantastic character. Uh, Much like Mortimer, she has a philosophy and has a way of looking at the world. In her case, it's coming through her Roman Catholicism that she adopted, what, in like 1930? Uh, So in the latter third of her life, does she throw herself into this? But yeah, uh, it's... I don't think Mortimer's taking advantage. I think if anything, he's trying to guide them a bit. Uh, there is a bit of a not quite parlor scene where he lays out all of his findings and he all but tells them there's no way they'll ever figure out who did this, that it is happening. Um, but he doesn't state that it's death, but he definitely leaves him with the feeling that he has a peculiar idea about what is taking place here. Yeah. And he tells his wife um, out of their hearing before they arrive that I think the quote is death is the culprit. So yeah, it is interesting with back to, to Jean Taylor. I think part of how her character is so a kind of interesting is that, you know, she was, I guess you would call it for the time in service, you know, for her life before she retired to the nursing home. But, you know, all of these wealthy people are her friends and they want to take care of her, including, Alec Warner and they're constantly trying to get her to move to a nicer nursing home because she has to share, you know, a ward with all of these other women and they don't think it's very nice for her. And, and she really wants to stay there because she says that she's made friends, but also I think that she, she finds value in living and seeing that reminder of death every day of, of her life to existing within it which the other characters really don't have. And, and yeah, so it, it is quite clever that she never, she never gets the anonymous call. This is also kind of tracking the social changes of the time where this nursing home seemingly staffed by uh, nuns and some, you know, doctors and nurses, et cetera. Uh, but it's largely paid for by the government as a, 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 as a social safety net, which hadn't existed previously. And there's some, some back and forth about the value of this and why is it keeping people alive for so much longer. But when Taylor first goes in, she, she resists it. And this comes up as she's reflecting on uh, a new head of her ward, uh, a nun in her fifties, who is in Taylor's mind fighting against a reality. And the reality is that the woman's aging that like whatever that she's past 50 that she is starting to move towards death in a way that maybe she hadn't thought of previously and after being in that um home for 2 to 3 years uh, Taylor doesn't need uh, a more comfortable environment she is she is aging she is approaching death and she's comfortable with that i mean Taylor has an acceptance of her situation and of the reality of the world around her uh, that most of the other characters both don't have. And some of them are aware of, aware of that, but most of them are chafing against something that they don't quite understand what they're chafing against. Godfrey uh, in particular, I think in, in, in that regard. And, you know, you, you keep seeing, different pairs of these characters like interacting Jean Taylor gets 
different visitors all the, all the time. And they're telling her parts of stories, parts of what's happening. You know, even though she's in this nursing home, she kind of is very attuned to like what this social group is, is, is doing and, and the, the, the dynamics and the, and the, and the power shifts amongst them and the, the greed and the clamor for, for the money. And yeah, I mean, I'll say it again, I'm repeating myself, but just, just the conversations, the the dialogue between these characters, it's just, it's just such a joy because it's witty, I, I guess in a kind of a British witty way, but there's also a witticism here that the characters themselves maybe aren't conscious of, of being funny or, or saying something particularly pointed, but you as the reader do. So you almost feel complicit with Muriel Spark and kind of, kind of seeing these characters through their conversations at an angle that sometimes they can't see themselves. And Spark very much plays with some of the frailties of age where characters are talking past each other and are interpreted as being too deaf or too senile. But really, it was just a misunderstanding. You didn't understand that what Godfrey was talking about in this situation was perfectly like in line. You just missed the point. And so you think that he's, you know, just off on some random tangent when really it's multiple conversations taking place at once, different threads all interweaving. But because of the assumptions built in, because they're all in their 80s, oh, this person's, they, they were, they actually refer to hearing aids as trumpets throughout, which is fantastic but this person's hearing aid isn't turned on or oh they've gone they've gone and got lost again that sort of thing when really that's not the case and then you throw a character like Pettigrew in there who outright lies uh, about what is taking what someone has or has not done uh, and undercuts especially when with regards to Charmaine um, throughout the novel and kind of muddies muddies the waters that way but on the top of the conversations it's really interesting that spark is, giving us all these characters at this stage in their in their lives when so much of what would be considered to be the action the fun part the the real intrigue happened 50 years before as charmaine is writing her novels as these affairs are happening as as they're driving from one person's house to the other and where did those two sneak off to or are they sneaking off you know whose illegitimate child is actually being raised where all of those things are are in the rear view mirror for these characters. And yet they're so fascinating. And the intrigue that they're living through right now in some ways feels, I don't know, even more vibrant at the end of their lives. There's just this inc- incredibly vibrant, yeah, social milieu that they're, that they're a part of, that they're like, that they're an aspect of. And that's against the backdrop of they're still bombed out buildings from the war, uh, the folks that are much younger than they are, um, Olive, who you brought up, um, her grandfather, Percy, we meet very early in the novel and is a- an absolute nut and wild man um, and quite da- in some ways quite dangerous as a result. But Olive is 24 and she is getting money from Godfrey to show her stockings a little bit. She, she is such a valuable person for Alec because all the old men are visiting Olive and Olive is living in this bombed out part of London and seems to be making a lot. I mean, she does do some BBC radio um, acting, but she seems to be making a lot of her money 
um, sort of by the graces of this older generation that is slowly dying off. Same, I mean, same with Eric. He is beholden to what his parents were giving him for money. And then when they cut him off, very much beholden to his Aunt Letty. So there, there's, uh, against this octogenarian, I don't know what to call it, um, octogenarian brideshead revisited, octogenarian. Um, uh, Peyton Place. Yes. So yeah, this, this, this social comedy, there is this other part that they don't get that they don't see that the next generation is trying to contend with and figure out. Yeah. It's, it's worth noting that Eric wasn't cut off um, by his parents until he was 45. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and when, and when they talk about Eric and when they finally state that Eric is 57, it's like, well, of course he is if they're in their eighties, but he sounds like a he sounds like a, a petulant child. When we meet him, he is a petulant child, and he's fifty seven. I mean, it's just uh, it, it's a really just such and and this. I mean, I think we knew this when we read the Comforters, uh, and it's certainly not shocking three novels in. But Spark creates such a rich and lived in and breathable world. Uh, it's one that you can absolutely imagine or just know exists in some in some manner existed in some manner at some point in time what did you make of ollie olive mannering um marrying ronald sidebottom quite late in the book and i think he's in his 80s and she's 24 he's 79 so it's it's okay all right okay not 80s yet but there's a yeah there's a uh, 55 year age difference there i feel like maybe this was an angle Olive was taking because she just, she just disappears. Uh, and then when she reappears, it's because she's, she's married, but Godfrey goes to see her one day and does his usual, I mean, and this is a man that's been having affairs his entire adult life because he has made great pains to tell everyone that his occultist is in uh, Chelsea and his lawyers in Chelsea and his chiropractors in Chelsea. But really that's also that he can cover the fact that she lives right nearby and he wants to go see her and see her garters on her stockings. Um, but he goes to see her and initially wonders if he'd gotten lost because she's cleared out, but he double checks. It's the correct, it's the correct basement apartment, but it's like no one had ever lived there. And then we come to find out that Ronald, whom we know she was interacting with because of her conversations with Alec, Ronald had proposed marriage to her after his wife Tempest died. And yeah, I I, I, I don't know the, the way that she just sort of, shut down everything, moved out, moved right in. One wonders if maybe this was the, the long game that Olive might have been playing the, the entire time. Cashing out. Yep. And right before Ronald cashes out, because not long after that, Ronald is not doing very well yeah. <laughs> at all. There's also the, the thread about Letty, and Letty becomes quite paranoid about these, these calls. She finds the... The meeting with Mortimer, quite unsatisfactory, <laughs> not surprisingly. And she doesn't really have any faith that that the police or Mortimer as a private detective are going to be able to like identify the person that's doing all of this. And so she starts hearing noises in her house. She lives alone. Well, no, she doesn't. 
for a bit. She lives with this housekeeper named Gwen, but then she freaks Gwen out to such an extent um, because she's so paranoid and hears noises and is always like, you know, jumping up and checking this and checking that, that Gwen finally just, just leaves. She can't take it anymore. Letty kind of, I, I think to her own bad end kind of lets, is maybe the person most affected by these, by these calls the book opens with her getting the call and something happens that makes you think that, Oh, well, you know, she really, she really was deeply and maybe the most deepest way affected by the calls. Each person hears a different voice call and has a different reaction to that voice, or at least the reaction scene, the reaction they have to the voice seems to dictate what they then describe the voice as sounding like. And in Letty's case, it's uh, deep paranoia. In Godfrey's case, it's anger, like fury. Uh, Charmaine finds it somewhat pleasant, uh, as a, like almost like a gentleman caller sort of situation. Uh, for Alec, it's very matter of fact, um, which kind of suits his, his outlook, which I think feeds into Mortimer's idea that this is death calling and death kind of presenting itself how it needs to present itself to these different people uh but on your point about uh letty's take on on the police this line the police dame letty explained with long tried emphasis are shielding mortimer and his accomplices the police always stick together and i just felt like i'm listening to louise Jap from the comforters once again <laughs> discussing the the local constable and uh i don't know mural spark has a has an outlook on uh, on the police and, and how they function within the larger society, it seems. It's interesting that you brought up the comforters because there were elements about Olive Manor, Mannering, I have a hard time with her last name, that reminded me of Lawrence, you know, kind of this um, very astute, kind of observant, investigative mind that she's got going um, in her in her pursuit of kind of helping Alec Warner with detailing all of his subjects lives and, and how they're reacting to different, different revelations and disclosures and secrets. And um, yeah, there was, there was something a little bit reminiscent for me about her. I mean, I think we're seeing some, we're starting to see some themes develop, yeah, in terms of uh, the characters, in terms of some of uh, Sparks' considerations, or, or and this was something we were talking about at the start. Um, I made before we even began recording, I made a comment of, uh, well, I asserted that Muriel Spark had a has a project, doesn't she? And then immediately started to question whether that was the case. And and you pointed out that maybe she's just having fun, maybe she's just writing the hell out of things, and and then constructing these novels out of the writing and and so on, and. I, I do think there are some thematics developing that we're probably gonna be able to, you know, pull out more. I don't think we're quite there yet, three novels in. But yeah, I, I don't I don't obviously she has viewpoints. Obviously she is writing to not just write but to to say things. Um yeah, I'm kinda take I'm kinda like I'm still I'm still very much trying to figure out where I think spar whether there is a larger project um in these novels or maybe over a 40-year career, there could be many projects that, that manifest themselves over time. I think I like, so far in what we've read, I feel like 
Spark has, and, you know, I think that she was still fairly, I mean, not young, young, but not elderly when she was writing these three novels, but particularly with the comforters in this one, I think that she makes the lives of the elderly electric, you know, where in so many works of literature, they're just kind of an afterthought, overlooked, they're boring. You get to the parts where that where they're involved and maybe you don't read as intensely or you you gloss over. No, it's it's the old people here that have these crazy lives and are so are so interesting. Lawrence, grandmother in the comforters. I mean, she's like she's like the best character in that book, I think. Just, you know, with her whole diamonds embezzlement <laughs> scheme and 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 likewise, you know, there are like you said, there are some younger characters here, but but yeah, the the lives of the the elderly are just are, are just so so rich and she does such a good job I think of of making them really come alive on the page. She's an adult when she starts writing these. Like she is a she is a person who has lived in the world and lived all around the world at that point and been married and not quite divorced and had a kid and lived through a war and um, a world war. And she does have a, it seems a larger view of things and an appreciation for the fact that life doesn't end at 40. I mean, that's when she, that's when she launched this literary career. So yeah, she absolutely creates these full, these complicated characters uh, as as complicated as as any person might be um, as as they get older, who've who've lived enough to have forgotten a lot of what someone you know a twenty a twenty four year old Olive hasn't seen and has <laughs> hasn't even lived as much as uh, Charmaine or Godfrey or even Letty, who seems maybe the most uh, sheltered of of that older group as much as they've forgotten in the course of, <laughs> of their lives. Right. And uh, Spark, Spark does a phenomenal job uh, representing that and representing that in, in, yeah, in The Comforters and here, Memento Mori, and even in Robinson. I mean, Robinson is older, but he still is, he's still a full person. A very a weird person, but yeah, person. he's a very enigmatic person. And, and that's also something that I think that Spark does, so well these characters are really quirky and really original they're not your meat and potatoes run-of-the-mill brits um she she unfolds a, a whole kind of experience that that they've lived through and and some of their they're just weird character traits it's just really it's just really fun to read her i think and i i, I can't wait i mean I seriously, you know, just each one we we finish, I look forward to reading the next one because I'm not quite sure what we're going to get, but I know we're going to get something really good. Yeah. And that's also, I think <laughs> it's almost the dangerous part is that you put one of these down, you immediately want to pick up the next one, but I'd rather talk about this one, not knowing what's coming next, because I don't want to know too much about what's what's coming next. It's It's sort of a fun... It is a very fun way to go through a writer's uh, catalog, I think, to almost 
in a much tighter time frame, but in a similar manner to the folks who who read these things at the time got to progress with Spark along her career. Yeah, and it's also kind of very different from the way we explored Javier Moraes, whereas mm-hmm. I had a decent grounding in him. You had an excellent, having read almost everything by him. This almost feels like we're going into it blindfolded. Like we we don't know we don't know where we're going, and it's fun. It's it's very very exciting, and it's a reminder of how much joy and excite joy excitement and I don't know, the, the thrill that a great writer can can offer uh, in their work. Yeah. Well, it's been fun, Tom. This has been a fun one. Thanks. Mm-hmm.